Welcome to the Podcast Potables Network. You are listening to Process Potables, brought to you by the Andrew Boss team at Berkshire Hathaway. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We are available on all podcast listening platforms. You can follow us on Twitter and untapped at Process Potables and on Instagram at Podcast Potables Network, as well as our brand new Twitch, which is also Podcast Potables Network, which we are broadcasting from live. Hey. Check out our other shows, namely Post Game Potables, our brand new podcast coming to you immediately following every Eagles game except for the last, like, three because uh, it's been pretty ugly and I've been really tired and fucked up some of the time, but... You know, we'll we'll get there. It's fine. Uh, first place in, in the NFC least, so it's all good. Power Bombs and Potables, our weekly professional wrestling podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Power Bombs PPN. For news, blog posts, information on breweries we've worked with, and much more, check out www.processpotables.com. And I almost forgot our brand new MMA podcast, Punches and Potables, with... Paul Ryan, Rob Huber, and Sean Hardy, who has been a welcome delight to the podcast, ripping on his brother, Paul Ryan. You can do the math there. So make sure to check that out. They are killing the MMA game. There's a big UFC card going on Saturday night. So if you are looking for the information leading into that and what they expect to come after, make sure to check that out. Process Potables is on tap. Cheers, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Process Potables. My name is Dan Morgan. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Says That. This is episode 71 of Process Potables, titled, titled honestly, who knows? That, that That's what I have. I really, I don't know what we're supposed to be doing right now, what to talk about. We, we've assembled some kind of list here, but the, the whole thing is just a fucking mess. It's up in jeopardy. Uh, sounds a lot like a basketball team we follow. It sounds like the country, honestly, as, as yeah. we approach Election Day, and that's as much as I'm going to get into <laughs> politics. My co-host, oh. Steve Jones. Uh, I can't talk, dude. I've been drinking for a while. Uh, my co-host, Steve Jones. You can follow him on Twitter at SWJones87. Steve, it's Friday night. We're we're feeling frisky. We got the juice. We got everything going on. A little, mm-hmm. uh, little bone saw, bone toba yeah. fest here, which we'll get to. Uh, some exciting news about that, but how are you feeling Friday night? Liddy City, baby. Liddy City, feeling great. And now that there's a camera looking at me, I could, I don't know if you guys remember this, I could do the thing that I used to hate the most watching the Sixers as a kid when there would be like a post game live. Do you remember Fred Carter? Like oh. He played for, he would always like, he would make what he thought was a good point. He's like, you know, they just got to drive to the basket. And they're like, that's Fred Carter. And he always says this. Like the stupid like finger point like gun thing, so now I can. Do so that. again, we're we're busting shots because we know we're going to be bad at this. But like the thing that freaks me out the most, which is is probably some recency bias because something like that I, I recall, but it doesn't stick with me as much as, as what happens now. 
And seeing somebody like, uh, you know, people like Molly Sullivan and now Serena Winters be let go, who did fantastic jobs on the yeah. sidelines, and seeing somebody like Jim Lynham still be around. Jim Lynham looks into oh the camera God. like it's sucking his soul out when he talks to you. And he's just <laughs> like, well, listen, uh, Amy Fadul, what the Sixers did tonight was they didn't score as many points as the other team. And like I feel like like some like you know how like they say like there are indigenous tribes that believe that a, a photo takes some some of your soul away. Like that's what happens when I watch Jim Line. I'm talking to a it, fucking camera. Is I feel like pieces of me are being torn out of my body, and I'm very uncomfortable. It, it does. You know, it kind of reminds you of, of Get Out a little bit. There's just like that yes. that glance that yes. near. It's like like he made a deal with the devil. He's like, I want to live till 120. He might be and talk, the fucking devil. Yeah. Have you really only looked at about him? Basketball, like, but he's just looking at. The at the camera's like, come on, Satan, like just send it now. Like I'm, I, like, I'm tired. I didn't of this. want like, this. I, yeah, like, like, like you I'm, were right. I was going to regret this. Like, you, you were right. I shouldn't have lived this long. I'm fucking miserable. Please put me out. And he's like, nope, sorry. This is what you wanted, yeah. brother. Uh, boy, okay, we went off the rails there a little bit. Joining us, uh, somebody not nearly as nihilistic as the two of us, I'd imagine, is our friend and recurring guest, Rob Manoff of Last Out Media. You can follow him on Twitter at ManoffRM. Rob, thanks for coming back on the pod. Uh, welcome to the first Twitch session of Process Potables. What's up? You know, I just realized that that's, like, that's a camera. And I'm now kind of freaked out. <laughs> you just realized that's a camera. Well, I don't think that blue light was on the whole time, was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I wasn't paying attention. But I mean, right now you look like you're on casting couch. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. Is that cool? I don't think anybody would I don't fucking know. We're talking basketball and drinking beer. It's Friday night. We have our engineer extraordinaire, Corey Oates, behind the board, uh, running the Twitch chat. He's got He's mic'd up. He's drinking the brewskis with us. Uh, before we get into the Sixer stuff, I do want to talk about what we're drinking and, and some news very important. Important to me, we are drinking this Bone Saw Brewing Bone Toberfest, which is their brand new Oktoberfest. It's absolutely incredible. It's a nice, easy drink. I think it's five point nine percent, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, a fairly easy drink for your kind of medium-bodied profile beer. But one of the better Oktoberfests I've had. We're obviously huge craft beer guys here. That's that's the you know the the, the precipice gimmick. of this podcast, so to speak. But Oktoberfests are one of the ones that I feel like a lot of craft breweries really don't get right. I feel like yeah. it's very hard to find a good one. And I know, Steve, you're a big German beer guy, and I think we both agree that one of the best, if not the best one that we've still had, is Sam Adams Oktoberfest, yeah. which Sam Adams is craft beer, but, like, not really craft beer. Like, you know, let's be honest about yeah. it. Uh, you know, somewhere in between your major distributor and craft beer. You know, they make some good beers, but they are by no means your your typical more mom and pop or, or you know, uh, small business type of, of craft brewery at this point. But their Oktoberfest is my favorite beer from them. It's not really all that close. Um, I think it's the best beer that they make. This is probably the first one that challenges it. I don't know if it's better yet. Uh, I had... Two at the brewery tonight, and I brought this crowler back for us to try. So this is technically my third, I guess. Um, it is really good. I like that it's light. I feel like normally in an Oktoberfest, I am looking for a little bit bolder flavor profile yeah. in general. But I'm not mad about this because I can drink a couple, whereas the Sam Adams one, I may get full after like two, maybe three. Like this is my third pour, and I'm fine. Like, I could still drink a couple other beers after this. W what's your takeaway from this? This is the first time you're having it. I just yeah, like, I, 
I was like, oh, this is really good. And then I just have like one sip left. And I was like, that's that's definitely an Oktoberfest. Yeah, that's I just looked that. over. I'm like, oh, and, he's, he's done. Yeah, and people that know me, like, it, this is like my favorite uh, seasonal style of beer. Like, I know around this time, a lot of people like pumpkin beer. And I am like, I, I like... I get crazy, you know, excited, like, you know, like the, you know, white girl, pumpkin, you know, PSL, you know, weather and season. Like, I'm all about that life, but I don't really like pumpkin beer that much. Like, a good Oktoberfest will always beat a pumpkin beer, in my opinion. But what does suck is, like, when it starts to come season, like, all right, good drinks Oktoberfest. I go to liquor store, I'm like, don't like that one. Don't like that one. Like, how, like for as much as I love the style, yeah. there's just only a few that are really, really I, good. I was and trying to think to myself tonight. Like, I feel like last year I remember going to, like, one or two breweries and trying them and being disappointed. I can't remember which ones. And I probably wouldn't want to, you know, trash anybody yeah. anyway. But I, I do remember last year, you know, really looking forward to trying some craft Oktoberfest variants and being fairly disappointed. So this one's very nice. And it, it's special to me because I went there tonight to, to hang out with a couple of friends because I'm actually going to start working at Bonesaw Brewery uh, in, in, in a, a little over a week. And I rate this beer completely unbiased from that point because if you've watched this, uh, I am very honest about what I think about beer. And we have had Bonesaw beers before this, and I have critiqued them fairly and will continue to do so. But, you know, when you work there, there's, there's probably a good chance a couple more are going to come on the pod because, you know, uh, you know. They get, get, a little, get a little hookup, you know, yeah. so... Gotta take care. Gotta take care. And listen, of the if there's one person I know who, if he worked for a beer company, and be like, you know, what? this sucks. It would be Dan. Like, I don't know anyone else who'd be that brutally. That's honest. true. I mean, if something yeah. sucks. This sucks, bro. Like a lot of things suck. But then again, you you probably wouldn't apply to work at a shitty beer. Well, I mean, money talks, but money know. talks, but no. More I, likely, I I appreciate the sentiment that yeah, I, I wouldn't apply to work at a shitty brewery. I don't think I could do it. Uh, so I'm very excited for that. But enough about me. Let's move on. The The man of the hour, so to speak, the main guy I think we're here to talk about is Doc Rivers. We did talk about the idea with Marty Teller a little bit on the last episode, but we've had some time to let things settle in. We have a little bit of an idea of what the coaching staff looks like with the addition of Dave Yeager as well, which I want to get to. Uh, the Sixers added Peter Dinwiddie to the front office, which I also want to talk about, but I want to start with Rob since we kind of already gave some of our thoughts and maybe some things have changed or we've learned more information. But before we maybe kind of rehash some things we already said, Rob, what were your initial thoughts when the Sixers made the uh, announcement that they had hired Doc Rivers to replace Brett Brown as the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers? So I, I was actually very underwhelmed. Um, really? Yeah, so Doc seemed like the safe bet to me. So it was kind of not not necessarily underwhelmed. Let me rephrase that. I was more like, all right, let's see where this goes. Like, it wasn't like the big splash. I mean, it was a big splash, but it didn't really, like, jump off the page to me. Obviously, I was a big – if you follow me, I'm a big Ty Lue fan. Um, but I think Doc was the safest. So I don't think – I mean, a new voice in here, and especially an established one, is going to help regardless. Um, and I think he'll help with Tobias – but ultimately, he's just another coach to me. Like, I, I get it. He has a championship. He's done well. He's great, vastly underachieved in uh, in L.A. I'm happy he's here. He's saying all the right things. Just not. So, so, talk, so that's interesting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that, but I get where you're coming from. So, 
let's talk hypothetical with me. Let's say that let's start this over and pretend they had hired Ty Lue. Tell me, you know, if, if that was the case, what would your response to my question be if I said, Rob, what are your thoughts on the Sixers, you know, new acquisition of Ty Lue as their head coach? I would have been very happy with that. And, and why is that different than Doc to, to you? To me, because I, Doc, as much as I like Doc, he, he doesn't have, like, there's been a couple times where he's lost the locker room. There's been, you know, in L.A., they're going through it now where, you know, they were treating people differently. Um, now, that could have been just been a thing for L.A., you know, but um, other than that, the the three one series leads to me is a lot to do with coaching. Um, you can't get your team prepared to play one more game to win one, one more game. game. That's um, fair. It's very yeah. fair. I think, and I also I thought I've bought myself into, and I talked myself into Ty Lue getting the best out of Ben. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if Doc can do that. Like, Doc doesn't have like to me who who. Has Doc coached that is like Ben? You know, at least I knew Ty Lue. You know, he had the LeBrons. He had, you know, people like that. Um, but that's not, to me, like, it's just because I think I really wanted Ty. Right. I mean, that's what I was going to get to. Is it sounds more like you're just disappointed we didn't get Ty Lue. You were it all was. in on that. Which is fair. I mean, if that. If but I was happy guy. it wasn't D'Antoni. Well, right. So, yeah, my thing with D'Antoni, you know, not not to get too far in it, was always I really like his philosophy and his scheme, and I would have liked him as a coach, but there's no way this roster could do it, and they don't have the flexibility to assemble a roster that could do it. Yeah. So it would have been bad. And, and he, want, he wanted to come in and play five out, which I don't think is a winning championship winning right. offense. Well, whether you do or don't, they don't have the personnel either way. Well. So it's, it's definitely a, yeah. a moot point for this team, which is which is where I was at. So, yeah, I agree with you. The thing, so to your point about Ty Lue, I, I can appreciate all of that. I do think that there's something to be said about Doc Rivers and especially like kind of a pretty poor postseason track record when you just look at the overall results. Like you can go and look at general win-loss, but you talk about a lot of, you know, series leads that have been blown and a failure to ever really get that far once he went out west with pretty stacked teams when you look back at those Clippers teams that had a lot of star power and it's definitely fair to think that that team underperformed a lot if we're gonna say that Doc Rivers never coached anybody like Ben Simmons to say that Ty Lue did because he coached LeBron after LeBron went to Miami and figured everything out and really didn't need any coaching, I don't necessarily agree with. And to hold any coach to the standard of they didn't coach a LeBron type, how many have? You're no, talking that's about a, a very no, select no, I, few. I understand, but if you so if you actually go through Ty's playbook, a lot of it's drawn up. Or what worked for them would really work for Ben. You know, having him at the elbow or him and Tobias at the elbow, you you can go through his playbook and you can see like, all right, I can see Ben doing this. Whereas, I don't know much. Like, I don't see where he fits in with Doc. Like, right now, Doc, you know, Rivers has been in the league for what twenty years now, one season. So, me saying that he hasn't done it doesn't mean he can't. Like, the guy sure. obviously knows basketball. It was just underwhelming at the time for me personally. And and that's my thing is the thing that I find interesting about Doc and what gives me hope is I don't feel like 
for the longevity he's had in his career, I don't feel like you can look at him as a coach that has a specific philosophy. I don't think he really has a a, a, a niche that he coaches to. I think he's one of the more adaptable coaches that, that I'm aware of that, that especially would have been available and has worked with a lot of different, you know, star types, roster types, and has had a lot of success in that where Ty Lu, I mean, you're really only talking about what two seasons with the Cavs with four. LeBron, with LeBron. He had four. He had four with LeBron. I think I think it was four. LeBron had, wasn't even there for four. When yeah, he, came he had at least three because they he he coached. He missed the first year. He was an assistant on the first year. Well, then, assistant. Then the then he took. I'm over. I'm talking head coach with yeah. LeBron on He's the been, team. Ties been to uh, three at least three championships because he they lost at least two, and they had the three one comeback. Okay. He might have been there for. I think LeBron was there for a while. I don't think he was there that long. But either way, so he he has that experience, but it's the only experience he has, really. So it's valuable, but if you're going to look at who is more versatile and who maybe can come in and, and be uh, more diverse in what they do and figure out what can work for this thing, I, I like the fact that Doc has seen a lot, and I don't think he's stuck with anything like that, but... Um, you know, I wouldn't have had a problem with Ty Lue either for what it's worth. It's the, I'm, the same way you're not really bashing Doc, I'm not bashing Ty, but I like the idea of Doc Rivers' experience, and I also like the fact that Doc has a history of a lot of big-name players and generally being able to deal with the personalities and hoping that he's definitely the type of guy that both Ben and Embiid should ex- respect. I think Ben would have definitely worked with Ty, like you said, and I think that's because of his relationship with LeBron as well, and that would have worked. I don't know about him. Embiid, and that's why I like the, the idea of Doc Rivers is I don't feel like anybody could really not respect Doc Rivers for what uh, he's done, and that that's going to be a benefit on this team. And to your point, the Tobias relationship hopefully benefits because we saw Tobias's peak under Doc Rivers. So yeah, the, and he's already he's already said all the right things. I mean, well, yeah, I he's got to do that. He's been around long enough. But even as far as Tobias, like I love Brett, um, but I think one of Brett's and we talked about this before. One of his major mistakes was Tobias never really had a real role. Like, I think you guys were the ones who brought it up to said, like, most of the time it's just him bailing people out. Whereas... I mean, I've I think, said that a lot. Yeah. He's a bail bond. I think it was when I was here. But Tobias, you know, straight line driver, which Doc figured out, and they're going to use him a lot more in the pick and roll, which I think he was like 20% they, of the they time. they need to get him back to the corners, too, for yes. three. That's a, that's a spot for three. And that that was one of the things that... That definitely kind of came to my mind on the last episode when we were talking with Marty was, I think one of the biggest problems for anybody on this team not named Embiid or Ben Simmons is the fact that I don't think anybody has a role when they play with them because it's so awkward to play with them. And and I have been on record, and, and you have too, you know, the history of our pod. Like, we're not on team break them up. We believe they can coexist. But when you start attacking the other players around them, I think that not enough discussion occurs about the fact that it is very awkward to play with them and Brett didn't do a good job of setting up the other people to play with them because he was so focused on Embiid and Ben because those were his guys and those were the stars and I get that but you obviously need everybody bought in and everybody to understand you know what they need to do and put them in a position to get the best out of them alongside with the stars yeah and I think that's if anything, that could have been the one thing to me that stuck out about Doc Rivers is that 
he's been in the league for 21 years as a head coach, and he's been able to adapt everywhere he's go. Mm-hmm. When you coach in the NBA for that many years, usually it's because you have a system or a certain you know thing that you just do that you're known for, and players respect that. You know, Phil Jackson with the triangle offense, you know, to like. Mike D'Antoni, there was that seven second, you know, seven seconds or less offense. Yeah. That like, you know, to like even Thibodeau, like, you know, you're going to play defense until your knees fall apart. Mm-hmm. Like it, Rivers doesn't really have that. And I think that's a good thing to be in the league that long and not to stick what just works for you in the past. And we've always talked about the challenge of Embiid and Simmons playing together. I mean, if there's one veteran coach out there that could figure it out, it's probably Doc. Yeah. I was going to say, if if you can't – so my big thing, if you followed me, was Embiid this year, not really buying in, not kind of really being there. If Doc can't get him, you know, to check in, then, you know, there's nothing much they can do. So I, I'll give you this. Like, the cool thing about Doc is he's going to come in here and people are going to listen. Because when you come in here with that history, when you're wearing the ring, you know, people are going to exactly. listen to you. Yeah. You know? So uh, even the young guys, but hopefully the one really cool thing and kind of been monitoring with Doc, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this, is what he does with his assistants. So his he lets his assistants basically not do everything, but they have a lot more control. So He doesn't micromanage. He doesn't it, micromanage. It seemed like Brett was getting there the longer he was here, mm-hmm. which was good. But, yeah, Doc is very empowering. And, and I want to talk about Dave Yeager specifically. But I have a couple points on Doc that I came up with that I want to ask each of you. You know, if you, if you don't know, you don't know. I mean, I think coaches are pretty tough to evaluate, especially somebody like Doc, who, like I said, I think is versatile and has a very long track record where he's not, you know, like D'Antoni, we could we could definitely figure these answers out pretty easily because he only really has one style of play. Yeah. Doc's going to be versatile. So this is this is more of an opinion, but, you know, get, give me your best thoughts if you can based on, on what you do know about him. My first question is, and Steve, we can start with you. For Doc Rivers, what does he do with Embiid on both ends of the ball? So on defense, mainly I'm talking about the fact that the entire time Embiid was here under Brett, the idea was they played this this drop center role where he's not really responsible for coming out on the perimeter. You know, if somebody starts driving, if they run a pick and roll, his idea is they get back and protect the rim. You settle for mid-range shots. You settle for floaters, et cetera, et cetera. And then on offense, do you think that, you know, me and you talked to Marty about this a lot, and I came to the conclusion that I really think that Embiid's entire offensive persona has been stifled by him always setting up on the left baseline and not having, you know, anywhere to go because, you know, the sideline is another defender, so to speak. Do you think that Doc is going to encourage him to shoot more threes, top of the art kind of stuff, and also, you know, save his legs? Do you think he becomes more of an an elbow kind of guy, taking those mid-range jumpers, maybe setting some screens? Or do you think that he just lets him keep doing what he's doing because he has been successful? You know, we, we, we scrutinize him a lot, but clearly through his career he has put up tremendous numbers offensively working off that side that he's comfortable on and you know either you know using his pump fake or getting to the rim or you know anything like that so in your opinion what do you think doc you know is going to want to do with Embiid uh on both ends of the court I have a feeling it's going to be a combination of the first two things you said between you know playing around the elbows trying to uh, develop a pick and roll game and also as you know trying to hit some threes and 
plays at the top of the key because it's there. And I don't know. I don't really have anything to prove that he will do that. It's just a gut feeling I have. Um, it's just if there's one thing that especially last year really like hit home for me, it's like as much as I love seeing MB just being a big guy, abusing guys in the paint and, you know, drawing fouls, getting N1 calls, like that type of basketball just doesn't win you championships. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Like the two teams that made the finals, they that's that's not what they did. Everyone wanted to criticize uh, Anthony Davis for not playing center. Well, he played power forward, and he has a ring now. So I think, you know, maybe he looks at just, or at least I hope so, looks at what's working in the league. And I think the big advantage he has is that Embiid has those skills. Like, he can, you know, he can hit it from mid-range, from deep. It's just the biggest issue is his willingness to listen and execute, stated a plan, and, you know, I think at some point they're if they're having an issue getting on the same page, like we see in the past sometimes Embiid, like if he's just trying to play, you know, differently or do something different, he just goes back to what works. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, no dude, like for to, to give, you know, a new offense, new direction, like a really good try, like you gotta play through failure. Like yeah. that's just what you gotta do. So and I just you know there's, you know, what, three, four years now of tape on Embiid. On, you know, he does play great inside the post, but that's just, you know, that's not where the league's at anymore. So I think I think Doc, and he even said this, is going to put Embiid in pick and rolls. I think he said that in his opening press conference or whatever that was they put on the, the internet. So I think Embiid will be used more in pick and rolls. If I were to guess, I don't know where he'd have Embiid. But my guess is just judging off of him talking. So he said two things he pointed out a lot when you watch him is the Sixers pace and the Sixers offense. He, he said the Sixers offense was like 19 in the league. And he wants to get it to within top like 10. top seven, top seven, yeah. 10. Um, and then pace. So um, which is going to what's going to end up putting your team, get you know, basically they're 19th in the league because a lot of times – their offensive possession is six seconds of Embiid facing up and then a pull-up right. jumper. Yeah. Your offense isn't going to be that good if you're using that much clock all the time. So um, my guess is he's going to try to speed Embiid up, hopefully help him with passing. Um, I'd be curious to see if he brings another big man in type to work with him. But um, as far as where he's going to be, if he's smart, he'd put him everywhere. Like let him shoot threes, put him in a block, put him in a pick and roll, put him in the elbow. I mean, Embiid's versatile enough that he can start to figure this all out if you do it. Defensively, I hope. So I found out the Sixers call what Embiid did. They called Batman. Yeah. And uh, it started with Neurons Noel because their defense was so bad. They just said, Noel, like if something happens, don't let anybody get layups yep. and just block shots. They, they use the Batman. same term with the Blue Coats, too. We've talked about it a yeah. lot. They, they so, do the same thing throughout the organization um, based on that. But I would hope they don't do that anymore because it's frustrating as hell to watch. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, to, to look at the – I consider that Batman thing almost on the same lines if we tie it to the Eagles, to the Jim Schwartz sticks defense. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, if you call it occasionally, I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. It's not uh, a a philosophy that will always fail. But if it's the only thing that you have, teams are going to figure out how to beat it. And we've watched three straight years of guys like Spencer Dinwiddie just hit floater after floater after fucking floater against us because they know they're not going to get challenged. So it, it, it creates 
we talk about Embiid as this elite rim protector, but if he's not protecting anything, it doesn't really matter. People yeah. aren't scared if they know he's going to back up, and all they have to do is you know shoot from six feet instead of two. It's not, it's not very different. When we're talking about Doc in the grand scheme, and I think this goes along to what both of you said to an extent, you know, Embiid can do a lot of things, and I don't think there's necessarily that much he needs to learn about it. I mean, he he's a very smart guy. He has studied this game a lot. I don't think it's like Doc needs to teach him how to do a pick and roll, like how to do a lot of these things. It's a matter of like having designs for these things and calling them. And one of the things that Brett Brown often did say and admitted to was that he didn't really like calling that many set plays. Yeah. And I think that's something that's going to change big time with Doc Rivers. Is he's not just going to let them play half-court street ball and figure it out and say, all right, well, the, the plan here is come up and see what's happening and figure out how to get it to Joel, and he'll go from there. It's going to be a set design a lot of the time. Not all the time, obviously, but there will be times where they come up and Doc is going to call for Embiid to come up and, and set a screen and set up the pick and roll. And there's going to be times where you ask him to come out and set the screen at the top, and maybe you're looking for a, uh, you know, a, kick, a kick and shoot and stuff like that. Like Those things are going to be designed by Doc Rivers far more often than they were by Brett Brown, and that's something that I'm very much looking forward to. Just judging off how I played, and honestly, I just played Juco ball, so not everything's based off of sets. So I don't know if during the regular season we'll see as many play calls as we think, but you'll see him telling them, like, you know, all right, run this set, you know, like a um, like a UNC. We used to call it UNC. What do we call it? Uh, I forget the names, but like a flex offense. So you run off of the flex, and uh, I think you'll see him say, all right, we'll run this now and, and then go from there. And hopefully, because it, it, you can only call so many plays, like it's not football. Right. You know? Yeah. So hopefully once the, you get these guys to start doing this over and over again, where you said like Embiid, he, uh, he doesn't need to learn to do a pick and roll, but maybe he needs to do it more. If he right, does it exactly. more, it becomes yes. easier, you know. So you do it more throughout this, and then he gets a little more control come playoff time, where you would think coaches get a little more control. Yeah, and the, and the term calling plays is is a, is a little bit subjective. So it's yeah, weird I mean, when you talk about basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily saying okay, like like when we were in middle school, it would be like okay, like you're going to come up and you're going to run to the corner, and somebody's going to be standing in front of you yeah. to set the screen, and that's the play. Like it's not going to be that direct, but like Brett was very much really not telling them to do much at all. It felt like, and I think Doc is going to be is going to give way more specific directions. Does it mean that they're going to run an an exclusive you know one look? play no obviously not but yeah it's a great point by you that you know there are a lot of looks that you can take out of a set yeah so you may t- you may have the set set up and then it may be on the player's discretion to obviously read the defense or he and- can he can adjust where he says like well you know we got this mismatch right now so and he said it a lot so he he's talked about positionless basketball so there's gonna be a lot of wip callers that are gonna be pissed <laughs> um but uh what else is there <laughs> but um he even said like They'll they'll run the pick and roll based off of who's guarding Tobias because Tobias is a bigger three, faster four. So he's going to want to put him in mismatch pick and rolls. So if somebody if there's a small guy guarding Tobias, he's going to he'll hopefully step in and say like, hey hey hey, run this set, but you're going to be here, you're going to be there, right. you know, take advantage of this. Where I'm not sure now, I don't know for sure, but I'm not sure Brett always pointed out the mismatches or necessarily told them like like you said because they're they're letting them just play like 
you know, Brett, like, tell him, like, yo, you're getting a mismatch there. Do this instead of this. I don't know if he did it or not, but they never did it much on the court. I think I think the difference between him and Doc, which I'm sure this isn't going to come as a surprise to anybody, <laughs> is that I, I don't have any doubt that Brett could identify it, nor do I, I doubt that he called it out. The difference is I don't know how stern he was about it, mm-hmm. how aggressive he was in telling them they need to attack it. And, and it comes back to the fact that, you know, he – grew with guys like Embiid and Simmons and probably babied them a little bit. You know, whether you think it was it was way too much or, you know, not that much, I think we can all agree there there's somewhere in between that that was somewhat of a factor. And that's not gonna come from Doc. Doc is the type that's gonna be like, yo, like Tobias, like if if you have a guy that's six six on you, like you better drive that ball every fucking time yeah. or I'm gonna sit you the fuck down. Yeah. Like like I don't have any doubt in my mind Doc Rivers will be and that I, guy. And I think they need it. I really do think yeah. they need it. And I don't a lot of people And Ta- bring, Ty would have done it too for the yeah. record. They a lot of people blame Brett for that. And I don't know if it's all necessarily his fault. If you if you read that did you read the book, Whitesman the Tanking to the Top yes. book? But if you hear about it, there was a culture built from the very beginning, and I, I don't know if Brett really had the control in the beginning. So then as you start to give him control, who's really going to listen to him? Right. You know, like, I didn't have to listen to it a year ago. Now I have to, you know. All right, so I, I want to move on to uh, two other points I have, and they both revolve around Ben Simmons, so we can probably lump them together a little bit. So same thing as we talked about with Embiid, but more focused offensively, obviously. How does he use Ben in the offense? We finally saw Brett get away from Ben Simmons as a a, a only point guard kind of option. We saw him using him in, you know, you can call it a point forward role. We saw him you know, in the power forward role. He became a much better screener. Uh, things like this. Do you think that Doc is going to just keep rolling with that kind of idea? Do you think that Doc may bring him back as more of a pure point guard? And the other side of this, which is probably a completely separate discussion from either of those points, but ties in all the same. Will or can Doc Rivers make Ben Simmons shoot the ball at least to a moderate degree more than he does right now? Rob, we'll start with you. Um. So I don't know how he'll use Ben, and I don't think he knows. Um, and I don't think he'll know fully how he uses Ben until the roster's set. Good so, point. That's very fair. Um, I love Shake Milton. I think he's going to be a really good basketball player. I don't think he's the starting point guard of a championship team. Um, I don't think that's a, a point guard at all. At all. And I think he's way better. I, I agree with that too. Yeah. So if you take Shake out right now, who's your point guard? Ben. It's Ben. Yeah, there's so, nobody else. Depending on what they do in the draft, trades, and all that, I think I'm sure he has ideas. Like, all right, if I got a point guard, you know, I'm going to use him as a roller. I'll use him here. Um, obviously, Ben's going to push and transition because that's what he's great at. Um, but as of right now, I don't, I don't see how he would actually have a real set plan. So you um, mentioned the transition thing, and you, you mentioned earlier how Doc said he wants to up their pace, and that's the one thing that leads me to believe that I think there's a very good chance that Ben is back in a point guard role. I can believe it. Because if you were saying you want to push the pace and you want this to be an up-tempo team, what's the easiest solution to that? Let Ben Simmons be the point guard. Yeah. Now, like he could do that anyway, but it's much easier when he just knows that that's well, what he is. So not necessarily. I've, I've actually learned a lot about pace over the past like six months. And it's not necessarily just up and down. Right. It's, you know, quick 
Right, and like buckets. you said, with speeding up and B, like yeah, you, you don't want these slow ass half court sets, but or you can uh, there like, is still a modicum of it, a, which means just get out and run too. Yes. And obviously, when you have Ben Simmons on your team, that needs to be a priority. But if you get if you actually have somebody that can dribble the ball, and you put Ben as a as a screener, you know that's an, that's a quick you know pick and roll with Ben Simmons is a quick easy shot because either he's getting a layup, you're getting a pull up, or he's going to get an easy seal on somebody. So. Um, well, the only problem with Ben Simmons in a pick and roll is he can't pop. He can't pop. <laughs> yes, but right, yeah, no, to, no yes, everything yeah. else does does work out. And and like I said, he has become a much better screener, uh, especially in the second half of last year. I think we saw a lot of great usage of him as the screener. Uh, Steve, what do you think about it? It's really the great unknown, like like Rob said. Like I, I really don't know. It's just it's going to be probably one of the more unique, if not the toughest, challenge of his career. When I read up on Doc Rivers after he was hired, a lot of people like to talk about how he made unorthodox players successful, guys like Rondo, Blake Griffin, uh, you know, even guys like Gallinari, the people who, you know, they passed, gave up on that guy. He kind of, you know, rebuilt their career a little bit, made them much better. And Ben's like, he's already a star in the league, but there's just, you know, that one thing he doesn't do, and it's shooting the ball. Um, now I do have to ask: Did either of you guys watch that playbook mm-hmm. documentary? Did you watch it? The Dr. J one? No, they no the um, it's a Doc Netflix uh, series that, that came out like a month or so ago. Oh no! I, they, I just got an email about a, a one that's about to come out with Dr. J that apparently season ticket holders will get early access oh, okay. to. I think, but no. Yeah, this is like only like. Four... Oh, I remember you talking about this. Yeah, okay, yeah and yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things he said was that when he coached Boston and when they got Ray Allen. And Kevin Garnett, he said he, you know, talked to those two guys, Paul Pierce, and they said, look, like, for this to work, you guys got to make sacrifices. And that stuck out to me because I'm like, okay, everyone says he's the culture guy. He can bring a locker room to, like, establish, you know, a way. And I'm like, but, like, no one's really told me, like, how or why he did that. And that right there uh, told me that. So I think, you know, Ben Simmons is going to have to, at times, maybe sacrifice at doing what he does best, just going to the rim. It's like, like no, don't do not do that, although you're really good at getting to the rim and drawing a foul. He, well, one, you can't even well, fucking make free throws. He's not great at drawing the foul. He can get to the rim. <clears throat> yeah, and two, it's like like you're going to have to shoot the ball and you're going to have your bad nights, and it's it's going to suck, but like you, you got to work through it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just always stick to what works because that do- what always works doesn't lead you to winning. It's going to be really interesting, man. I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation involving uh, Ben Simmons. Yeah. I mean, my biggest thing I thought about anyone that came in is I don't think anybody, any coach would have taken this job and expected to come in and, like, continue to baby Ben Simmons and let this slide. Like, I think you would have – I think any head coach that would have came in for this job would understand that that's just setting up for your own demise. So I think that if you were willing to take – this job in the first place, you understood that there was a unspoken agreement that you needed to figure out how to get through to Ben Simmons to some degree. What that degree is, I don't know. None of us know. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure Elton Brand and Doc had that conversation. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, like I said, you would have had that conversation with anybody, and I think any coach that was you know, even considering this opportunity had to be aware that that was something that they were going to have to have some kind of plan for, some kind of idea on how they were going to attack it. Does that mean they'll have success with it? I don't know. Who knows? But you, you, you don't, you know, you don't take a job at a 
you know, at a fast food place and not expect to, you know, clean stuff up and not expect to work a, a grill. Like, you know what you're coming into for a job like this. So I, I have faith. In, and again, that's one of the reasons that I'm happy about the doc signing is I feel like he definitely has probably had those issues with a lot of players before. To this degree, I don't know. What I had him with Rondo. Well, for sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But or, he's a way, way different. I mean, Rondo wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it it, it, it is very similar. Rondo wasn't well, they as afraid shoot. to shoot. He just couldn't yeah. fucking shoot. But yeah. he still needed to. Um, and he's finally started to come around on it a little bit. But So I actually have more faith in Ben shooting than a lot of people. Um, one of the things I see with Ben, now it might just be because he's more open on social media. It's him actually working on it. I mean, Chris Johnson's a good coach. And knowing that, now for me this is something personal, but knowing that, or it hits home, I mean, he's going to see – you know, a mental a psychiatrist or psychologist. To me, that shows, all right, he sees he needs to fix this, and he's doing what he needs to do to fix it. So I kind of hold back and be like, all right, he's trying at least, you know. But uh, at some point, I think, he'll, I think it'll come around. Now, whether Doc can do it or whether it's the psych helping him or it's LeBron, LeBron eventually being like, dude, just fucking shoot. Like, yeah. somebody's going to get – got to get through to him eventually. What I want to know is there was only three days, okay, between him uh, parting ways with the with the Clippers and being hired by us. Like, I'm sure he spent almost every hour of those three days thinking, "How the what the fuck am I going to do with Ben Simmons?" And he's probably still thinking about that. Like, that's just like three days, man. Like, that's that's nothing. <laughs> Did you hear him piss off Howard Eskin already? Not to drop names on your thing. The first question in his in his opening press conference, Howard's like, "Well, would you bench Ben if he doesn't shoot?" And Doc's like, "No, I'm not going to bench Ben Simmons." Uh, so must have filled him in that Howard Eskin just loves to be the first question at the press conference guy. Well, that's the only thing he asks <laughs> all yeah. the time. Are you going to bench Ben Simmons? Yeah, they probably left. But he, dude, those three days, and since then, he's probably thinking because he said it a bunch of times. I don't care how we score as long as we score. Well, you should care because eventually, finally gonna score. <laughs> eventually, you know you you know he's gonna shoot. So, and I can't say this enough. I'd rather see his free throw percentage go up than his three point right. attempts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, but, you can, if you can give me January you know, Ben Simmons, where he's like seventy five percent and like ten yeah. ten a game, you Absolutely. can shoot. You don't have to shoot it all you want. Yeah. Yep. Just keep doing that. Could not agree more. All right, I want to ask you guys, uh, you know, about Peter Dinwiddie who. Uh, left the Indiana Pacers and joined Philadelphia as the new Senior Vice President of Basketball Operations. But before we do that, a quick message from our sponsor, the Andrew Boss Team at Berkshire Hathaway. Who's the next person you know who will be buying or selling a home? Have them contact the Andrew Boss Team at Berkshire Hathaway for the most trusted process when it comes to real estate in New Jersey. Call today, 856-904-5636. That's 856 856- 904-5636 and mention Process Potables for exclusive savings. So I don't know how aware you guys will be of what Peter Dinwiddie has done in his time in Indiana, nor does anybody truly know you know, how much he was involved in this, but he was definitely some sort of part of a lot of these decisions. But our friends at Liberty Ballers actually uh, wrote up an article on his transaction history in his time with Indiana. And I found this very interesting. Uh, the pieces by Sean Kennedy, 
Uh, so shout out Liberty Ballers and Sean Kennedy for this information. I thought it was very interesting. I'm just going to hit you guys with the, the real quick rundown of most of the, the moves that are uh, acknowledged in here and see what your overall thought process is just on what you what you think of this and, and what your perspective would have been in general, whether you were aware of this or not. So the first one they have is July of 2017. The Pacers traded Paul George to Oklahoma City for Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis both of whom they still have right now, uh, both of whom have been all-stars at, at different points with that team. July of 2017, so same month, they signed Darren Collison to a two-year $20 million deal. Uh, after that deal, he did end up retiring. Uh, they also signed Bojan Bogdanovic to a two-year $21 million deal, who we know afterwards went on to sign a four-year $73 million deal with the Jazz. Uh, they acquired Corey Joseph in a trade with the Raptors in exchange for the draft rights to some name I'm not going to try and pronounce, but <laughs> nobody any of us likely have heard of, nor has done anything since. In June of the following year, they drafted Aaron Holiday 21st overall, who shot 39.4 from three last season. Uh, the next month, so July of 2018 in free agency, they signed Doug McDermott to a three-year $22 million deal. Uh, who since then has shot 40.8% and 43.5% from three, respectively. October of that year, so right when the season started or right before, they signed Miles Turner to a four-year $80 million contract extension. Uh, June of the following year, they drafted Goga Bidadze. Oh, yeah, Goga. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Goga's a good guy. Yeah, sure. Uh, that, Even in the league? I don't know. I, uh, it doesn't seem like it. Sounds July like of 2019, they signed Malcolm Brogdon to a four-year, $85 million deal in a sign-in trade with the Bucks, sending uh, Milwaukee a top 14 protected first-round pick and two second-round picks. Uh, that same free agency, they signed Jeremy Lamb to a three-year, $31.5 million deal, which was obviously a bust. Uh, that same month, as a part of a three-team deal with Phoenix and Miami, they traded $1.1 million for T.J. Warren and three second-round picks. This is the same T.J. Warren that scored 53 points on the Sixers. He averaged 19 this season. In this bubble. Mm. They actually got three second-round picks to take him on, <laughs> which is crazy. At the same time, they signed T.J. McConnell, former Sixer, the two-year, $7 million deal. Great signing. And then at the beginning of this past season, uh, or well, beginning of October 2019, they signed uh, DeMontis Sabonis to a four-year, $77 million contract extension. So those are the major transactions as far as Dinwiddie's tenure with the Pacers. Again, now he does join the 76ers as the vice president of basketball operations. We know that there has been turmoil and chaos and lack of accountability and understanding of roles in this front office for years, essentially since... I mean, you could say hinky to a degree, but especially since Colangelo was forced upon us by Adam Silver and the NBA, uh, it does seem like finally they're kind of getting back to what appears to be a somewhat normal front office regime, although a lot of the uh, same front office people do remain as of now, despite our efforts to uh, get Josh Harris to sell the team and or get them to clear a lot of the front office. So, Steve, I'll ask you, uh, you know, if you had any insight on Dinwiddie prior to me reading you this list, and if not, uh, when you look at these transactions, you know, w- what is the overall theme that you get from it? Would you would you grade him fairly uh, well or, or poorly based on what you have heard 
uh, from this article. Again, thanks to our friends at Liberty Ballers. <clears throat> so I will have to admit that when I first saw the headline, Dinwiddie to Philadelphia, I was like, wait a minute. But um, it's a diff- diff- different, uh, different Yeah, so that sucked. But they look, uh, little, they look a little different, though. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't uh, obviously really know him or, uh, you know, his track record beforehand. I mean, everything you just read me is pretty, compared to the rest of the league, pr- pretty impressive. Um, now, I will say the Paul George trade, like, I just, I think that had been more luck. I don't think at that time anyone thought that they got the better of that deal. I did. Well, no. But with the better of Heinz, no, you didn't. Okay. Here's well, here's the well, thing. The, the, I think it was just like the benefit. Of did hindsight. you think they got the better of the deal? No, but in that time, you still figured that normally when you trade a star of his yes. caliber, you get a pretty poor return. That's the point. And yeah. even in real time, most people thought that that was a pretty good deal. That's what I thought. And with the benefit of hindsight, they Fair definitely enough. won that trade. Oh, At yeah. the time, I don't think anybody thought they won. No. But even then, you were like, you know what? Like that's a pretty decent return, for, knowing he was going to leave. For anyway. a guy who was saying, "I'm leaving." Yes. So, so yes, that that I will I absolutely say that I I don't think that that was that far of a stretch for a lot of people. I know that I was in that boat as well. Um, and now, so wait, from he was um, vice president of basketball operations for the Pacers. Yeah, that I don't know. Okay, uh, it just so, says he was a former executive. Okay, because. I imagine a hire to hire someone away like that. Oh, had uh, he was him. he was the senior VP of basketball operations. There. Senior VP. Yes. Okay, so I imagine he's. You don't pry a guy like that and not give him you know, a bigger payday and a bigger title. Well, it's the same so, title, but obviously, is, you know, the Sixers have a lot more money than the Pacers. I'd imagine. Yeah, so I'm sure, there's a pay bump. So, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, a, a guy like that does give me more hope that. Maybe they can somehow get something out of the Al Horford trade. Any moves they make again, like the impact of COVID is really going to complicate things. Like even today, you know, this second, I still don't think know where anyone in the league knows where they stand as far as the salary cap or what the hell is going to happen. They think they're going to be playing before Christmas, but they have no clue to financial uh, ramifications. But with that said, I mean, this sounds like a guy that, I mean, he has a history of success, and he's just not, you know, one of these uh, Colangelo lemmings that are just working on. You're just really having the same guy working in a couple of different positions. And I just hope that he, if all he is is just an extra voice in the room, like that's just, that's not going to work. Because, I mean, before, I mean, before his uh, hiring, we've, you know, talked about how there's too many, mm-hmm. too many cooks in the kitchen here. And I just hope that he has some sort of seniority or final say over these guys. So, uh, you know, that's that's what I hope is the case here. But with this Thanks, front man. office, you won't fucking find out until 10 years someone writes a book about it. So. Call that the uh, too many dicks on the dance floor yeah. theory. Please. Uh, Rob, your thoughts. So I'm tough. It's tough for me when it comes to front office people because I don't know what they do. Like, what the hell is an executive, senior, vice president? It's just a bunch of corporate names in front of a thing. Like, I don't know their job. Like, they hired this guy, Dinwiddie. He has the same title as Alex Rucker right now. Alex Rucker is the vice president of basketball operations or Cohan, whatever he is. And uh, so they hired the same guy? Like, the or- difference, the only difference we can be aware of is that, you know, it, it appears that Dinwiddie does have some kind of basketball background. Yes. I have no idea what the fuck Alex Rucker's ever done. But what I like to see is 
So I, I try not to judge people because, like, with the two guys that left the Sixers, everybody's like, oh, they're awful losses because they were they were hinky guys, which is fine. But do we really know what they did? Right. So I like the fact that they're adding people. I think they're going to subtract people. Um, there's thoughts that somebody said that they're letting people try to find other jobs first yeah, instead I, I of firing them. I don't know how much truth there was. So, but either way, I like the fact that it's brand hiring these guys. Like, we'll, at least as fans, we'll know. All right. So, Brent, this is your guys. So, from now on, it's on. It's on Elton and his guys. And hopefully, they. When you hire people, see, when you have three, you have the Hinkies, the Colangelos, and the Brand people. You got three different visions, three different type of people. Now you're going to start hiring people that's going to have the same vision as you. You're going to talk to them. You're going to, you know, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to accomplish. Everyone should be primarily on the same page. So. Well, I wish they would have just wiped everyone out and then rehired everybody. It would have been a lot better. But they never do anything. And they, they had the built-in right, excuse for COVID and, and yes. money and everything. So, I mean, we, we should have had a more realistic expectation for that. But, you know, we're just frustrated. So, it's difficult. But, yeah, I agree. I mean, again, it's tough to exactly understand how involved he was in a lot of those. But when you have a track record that, that is that overall pretty uh, – you know, in your favor, uh, in the up and down, you know, structure of the NBA as far as trades and free agency and the draft, uh, I think you do have to be pretty hopeful based on the information that you have. Whether that actually translates, you know, will remain to be seen. But. No, you know, we, Rob, you you do make a good point. You're like, at the end of the day, we don't know what the hell these people do. That these corporate. Right. Talk. I for some reason I just think of uh, that one Parks and Rec episode where um, Ben's running the campaign and there's that politician they think that's a robot and he says the same things like be careful out there it's a hot one and he's just sitting in the conference room like this you're like oh maybe he's watching tv <laughs> but he's just sitting there in this big cozy office and they're like yeah how about that guy he's like oh he's perfect he just does everything you want him to do just and says just all does, the right things yeah it says all the right things. shows up on time yep. they, do it, they do it in football all the time they just make up titles oh yeah, yeah. here you go do you're, you're we're gonna work in an office here and you're like what but um, I need to get in that kind of job. One thing I just, <laughs> one thing I just thought about: these guys aren't coming, you know, with bad references. So the people that worked with him, you know, somebody from the Sixers called him and said, "Hey, is this guy any good?" I mean, front office work for the NBA is a fairly small field, right? A couple thousand people, maybe. Sure. So people know people, and uh, I'm just thinking the people that work with him are obviously saying good things. And then the track record of the Pacers. So, I mean, I can't be mad about it. Right. You yeah, know? for like a mid-market team, you know, if they're even that, I mean, that's that's a pretty yeah. good resume. Yeah, they weren't landing like a superstar. That's not, you know. Agreed. All right, so a couple quick hits here. Um, probably not anything too heavy, but just your general thoughts. We talked a little bit about the Sixers cap situation. As as far as the understanding is, for now it appears the cap is going to remain at about what it was. It looks like about $132 million, I believe, is the number, uh, whereas the increase was uh, uh, initially projected, as I believe, to go up to around 139 and now it looks like it's going to flatten out at what it was. It's Either way, the Sixers were going to be pretty strapped, but obviously with, with no increase in room, they are definitely... Uh, Chef, as they are a, a luxury tax team by a large margin, 
I really don't have any flexibility. The one thing that they will have available besides vet minimums will be the taxpayer mid-level exception, which runs give or take about $5 million that you can give to somebody. We were talking about this a little bit beforehand. I think the easier way to address this first, and then if you have any thoughts on who guys that might fit this role may be, you can feel free to throw them out there. But, Rob, we'll start with you. Assuming that the mid-level exception is the only real for lack of a better term, you know, major move they are able to make. Do you think that the Sixers, I guess there's two answers to this, are they more likely to use it on a guard or a backup big, in my opinion, most likely a center? Or, you know, there's a difference between what are they likely to do and what should they do. So, so uh, you know, if you, if you think that, that there's a difference there, feel free to state so. But I think they should and are likely to use it with a guard. Um, unless Horford's traded and you're not getting – you're getting a guard back, then you can use it for a backup center. But um, I think the front office and I think people pretty much know they need guard play. And the only way you're getting a veteran guard in, unless you trade for like Chris Paul, is with that. So like when Marty was on your pod, said somebody like Langston Galloway. Like he, I think he would be fine coming in here. Um, and I think that's something they're going to shoot to do. So do you think that, that if they go guard, are they looking for more you know, ball handler, more shooter, or more combo? I think they would do more ball handler. I think one of the biggest things last season for me was you needed to upgrade Neto. I think if they upgraded Neto, they're a lot better team, um, especially when Ben went down. You're not going to upgrade Neto with a vet minimum. So throw him a couple extra million dollars. Maybe you get an upgraded ball handler type point guard who's not a six foot two Spanish <laughs> dude. You know, like. Oh, you weren't a Sergio Rodriguez guy either? He actually, <laughs> no, I actually am a Sergio. He actually plays with my friend, or played with my friend in Russia. I actually really liked him. So did I, actually. Um, That's why I. Yeah. But I don't think he's an NBA basketball no. player. No. Steve, your thoughts? It, it's tough because I, I have a feeling that. Because of, you know the financial uncertainty, they they might not even use it, but they would be dumb not to. So they're I, gonna use it. They're gonna use it. Um, the biggest indicator is going to be if they're able to trade Al Horford. If they trade Al, you know, if they trade Al, then I think you have to go back up, big man. Um, because if we're stuck with Al Horford, whether you like it or not, he's your backup center. That's just what's going to happen. And then you know. You have uh, Pell as your third center because, you know, in the NBA, third center on your depth charts, whoever. Mm-hmm. So uh, if they're able to get rid of Al Horford, I um, one name, I kind of I kind of hate myself thinking of this. I was thinking of um, like a Serge Ibaka or even like a um, – I think uh, Aaron Baines is a uh, – Aaron Baines is a free agent. And, I mean, both of them are way more than $5 million. Yeah, yeah so – but – I, I, just, I don't know. I just had this feeling where the amount of teams offering that money, you know, the uh, the supply is going to be greater than the demand. I think you're going to see a lot of guys taking just one-year prove-it deals because mm-hmm. that's probably all they're going to get. Uh, so I, I think a lot of teams are just going to have to run it back with the same players because, you know, they have to. Now, if we, uh, if we have the same roster, I think we definitely need uh, like a combo guard. I, I, you know, we're Shake Milton guys. I love them, but he, 
he had some great games in the bubble, then he had some really, really bad ones. Um, I don't think he's a free agent, but I, I would just love to see Lou Williams. <laughs> Lou Williams, they said he's on the block. But, you know. And but he's I, got a big contract, too. Yeah. They could fit that. Yeah, there's a they doc could. connection and him coming back. To, like, there's all these things that don't really matter that, you know, that w- I would love to see him here, but that's just, you, can, you know. They could swap. Now, contract-wise, they could swap Josh and Lou. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, Lou's under contract, that so you'd really, have to trade for him. I don't think that yeah. does much for you because you kind of need Josh, too. Yeah. yeah, okay. In that case, you but could swap Contract-wise, you can swap them, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I wasn't thinking of anything involving Josh moving, but sure, yeah, if we're, if we're taking that into consideration, then you do have a lot of flexibility if that's the case. Um, Lyson Galloway is definitely a guy that I can see if they do go guard. Um, I think Jeff Teague, Reggie Jackson. Basically all those guys that are like, they're kind of point guards, but they can score. Um, I don't think you call them combo guards, even though I think you could make the case for it. Um, they're definitely point guards that can score versus like a Shake Milton who is a shooting guard that can kind of play points. Yeah. So yeah, you could get um, Jeff T. You what? could probably get um, you know Paul Millsap. Probably get Kyle Korver all in one year deals. So I'll ask you another. <laughs> I see another thing when it comes to center or guards. Could you get if you had to pick, pick your pick with a vet minimum? Do you think you can get a better center with a vet man, or do you think you get a better guard? Probably a guard. Think so? uh, I only think this year because of teams being strapped on the cap and stuff mm-hmm. that there just are more guards, and that maybe you know we may have an overestimation in our heads of what guys are going to be able to get. Whereas there are f- so few backup centers that I would even potentially trust if we're not looking at a guy like Horford. That I think that I'd rather spend the five mil there, and, and I'd I- rather take my chances on a vet minimum point guard mm. if I have to. Yeah, because... Even if I have to get two of them and figure it out, yeah. you know? Well, yeah. that's what they did last year. Exactly. Yeah, and dude, like, look, like, I, I, like, last year I was in on Willie Cauley-Stein, and again, they could go get him, and I think he's a guy that's a perfect okay, yeah. MLE candidate mm-hmm. that I think could be a really nice backup big here. Um, I don't really know a lot of other options that make sense there of guys that will be available. I've heard names like John Henson, who I fucking hate. Um, and Jamichael Green, who is nope. fine. But, like, I think Willie Cauley's sign is so much better than guys like that, but will only be valued at about that MLE number. Mm. So uh, this is year two of me petitioning to get Willie Cauley Stein <laughs> here. I, I, I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. I'm definitely a little bit biased, but I'm a big fan of his. And I wanted him here last year, and I'd be fine with him uh, oh, coming dude. on the MLE this year. If they just signed him and then didn't sign Horford and sign some other people. Oh, it would have been great. That's all I wanted. I was fine. I I said then give him three thirty last free agency. I said give him three thirty and let him be a, a real backup big that keeps Embiid to only playing you know thirty minutes a mm. night twenty twenty eight to thirty minutes a night. I think you could have lived with eighteen minutes oh, of Willie Cauley three thirty and that's either. a movable contract too. Exactly, man. <laughs> if it, all goes to hell, yep. Well. Sign. Give me the job, bro. Give yeah. me the job. Um, Sorry, Bone Saw, but. Uh. <laughs> Couple quick hits here. Mario Shayok, a guy they have on a two an, on a two way contract that does continue into this season. We really didn't see him at all with the team, despite cries from the fan base. Careful, buddy. It's empty, but careful. Uh, Steve's struggling with his f- flight glass over here. Uh, do you think that, especially with their 
cap concerns and everything that you, you will get a decent amount of Shayok this season in the same way that you saw Pell get a couple stretches with the main roster before finally getting called up. Do you think that's the same path for Shayok this season, or do you kind of expect that he still maintains generally being on that two-way and spends most of the time in Delaware? I think you'll definitely see more of him this year, especially if they are somehow able to pull off a 72-game season that starts in late December. I mean, it's 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 kind of funny going back one or two years now when they re, uh, renegotiated the CBA, they uh, started the season a couple weeks early, so they have you know only three games a week and coming back on the less um, on the back to the backs to backs, and now to fit in another season in, they're probably have to go back to that. So, I think just uh, out of necessity, you're going to have to, especially if we can't get anyone, you know a decent guy at the vet minimum. I think we're, we're going to have to do that. And I mean, I, at this point from the little bit of, I've seen a Shayok that's, um, you know, I'd much rather see him out there than, um, fuck, I forget his name. The kid with the peanut, that almost died from a peanut. Zaire. 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 Yeah. God. Phew. Yeah. I, I just always forget it. I mean, I don't think Zaire is, is playing much this year. I think he's going to be wherever. a Delaware again. I, yeah. I, I don't know I, if he can. Yeah. I don't, I'm not. We, I've tried to find this out a couple times. He's a first round pick, and there's only a certain amount of time. He's oh, you mean you don't know if he can be in, De- oh, you're in right. Delaware? Oh, you're right, you're okay. right, you're right. Without yeah. being injured, so um, I actually don't even think he'll be on the team. Yeah. If you think about it, we put. If you put the clues together, he's making what four million this year? Yeah, a little under four. Is so three point two or three point eight. Are the owners going to pay the tax on him? Or they would they rather dump them? Well, they're paying the tax either way. But it's it's four million less. So if you just well, dump right, them, they don't pay the tax the on extra him. the extra three twenty five per dollar on it. Whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. I, it's just a thought, especially when him not going to Orlando. The only reason I think they have to pay it is because I think they're going to need him as filler for trade salary match at the deadline. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's why you have to pay him, even if you're not paying him with any intention of playing him. You're, you're just going to need that salary unless they do it now. Right, you're like him and him and Mike Scott are like your two guys. That... I think I think Scott's gone. Well, yeah, I mean yeah. Scott's the same concept, same concept. with a yeah. little bit more of a price tag. Is he? I mean, and at least he could see the floor, but I don't think they really need him. And let's be honest, if Zaire ever gets you know playing an NBA, figures out is really good. It's not happening here. It's not here. Well, no. it's not. It, it's not <laughs> even that it's not happening here. It's not happening in the window this team has yes. for sure. So right? Yeah. Does it really matter? Do you really care if Zaire Smith becomes a NBA average bench player three years from now when Embiid's probably retiring or something? Yeah. Like now, do I care, or does Sixers Twitter? The, care? the general perception. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot. Of, I mean, we still hear about Jeremy Grant. I mean, I, listen. I now I would Zaire. love. I would I love him for too, but yeah, there's some Sixers fans that you know. If he became an actual player, won't get over it. Well, of course, but you know they're, they're Sixers fans. Yeah, right. But um, you're right. Like, if he's not good for another three years, where matter. are we going to be at in three years? Right. You know? Exactly. Um, Norvell Pell is he a real backup center? Could you play him ten minutes a night for sixty five games and be okay with it? If he can put on like a good ten to twenty pounds of muscle, yes, he just. Well, I mean, he's already what's he twenty seven, twenty eight. He's old. Yes, yeah. he, he's, but he ain't putting on the muscle at this yeah. point if he hasn't already. Bro. I mean, he might put on the weight from just being in quarantine, but uh, I 
you know, I don't think he is. I, I, I love the guy. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think he's um, a back. No, he's not. But you know what? We've had a lot worse backup centers in the city. So that's where I'm at. I understand that he's not. Like, in no way am I saying like, oh, like you could, you don't need Willie Cauley Stein. You have Norval Pell. But we've seen this team get to the second round of the playoffs with Amir Johnson and Greg Monroe as your backup center. You could do worse. But Amir Johnson and Greg Monroe actually knew how to play the game. Uh, and they get a thousand fouls in three minutes. I'll, I'll give you Amir Johnson knew how to play the game. I'm not going to give you Greg Monroe knew how to play the game. I don't know about that one, dude. But either so, like, Pell, I'll give you Amir. Appel just, I he seems very nice. I'm happy he signed his. Contract. I will take my chance on the energy than I will the yes. old dude who knows how to play but can't get the fuck out of anybody's way. Yeah, but <laughs> I just think he he's got to learn how to not foul. Oh sure, of because course. that's. That crushes your team. That's what, like, like I said, I think Willie Cauley-Sign can play 15 to 20 a game and you're fine. Norval Pell, I think 10 is your best case scenario. What? But I think that if you needed him to play 10 for the whole season, where, where that does work if you have Horford, because I don't look at Horford as only your backup center. But if you're saying, you know, Embiid's playing 30 minutes at center and, you know, Horford's maybe playing, you know, 20 minutes at mm-hmm. the four and eight minutes at the center and then Pell's taking the other 10 so that Horford's not playing 30-something a game either and wearing him into the ground, especially if you're trying to hold out hope for a deal for him that I think you could live with that, uh, you know, mainly because of the fact that Pell makes such little money and I think for the value, you may, you kind of have to maybe ride that wave and try. Is it the best case scenario? You got to give him no. a shot. Yeah. You know, just like you give Shaq. Like, Shaq will be, in my opinion, will be on a two-way this year just because of the money situation because they can always cut somebody and convert them right. to make them to the playoffs. I mean, he'll get converted at some point. The same at some as Pell, point, yeah. yeah. But he won't start. But he'll you got to give him, like, you got to give him a shot, you know, especially let a guy rest. Yeah. You know, let him play. Uh, lose a game, you lose a game. Who cares? Two guys acquired at the deadline, Glenn Robinson the third and Alec Burks. Who is more likely to come back? Uh, obviously, we don't necessarily know that either will, but if you were betting on one to come back, who's the guy? I think it's uh, GR3, just because I think someone will throw at least uh, um, MLE at Burks. Well, I mean, if they only throw the MLE at Burks, you could throw the MLE at him. True. I think he gets more than the MLE. So, I mean, I agree with you, but I think if your argument is he gets the MLE, then the Sixers should throw that at him too. So then it would become, does he want to be here or not? Which I yeah. also don't know that he does. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the big thing. Does GR3 want to be here? Because he bought in going into the, he obviously wasn't happy when he got traded here. Bought in going to the bubble and then got hurt. And then, you know, things happen. Now, does he think that they can win a title with Doc now and Ben and Joel? I don't think it's that crazy. Like, anytime you have Ben and Joel, you know. So, we talked about this before, too. Does GR3 opt in? Like, he has a player option. If you're not going to get a multi-year deal, you know, COVID screwing everything up, if they're not spending a shitload of money, you're here. Maybe you opt in, play another year. You're going to play here. And, and like, he's going to play. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. my thing is I think it does make a lot of sense for somebody like him to take that option and basically do, you know, one of those one-year prove-it deals. Mm-hmm. You're on a team that's going to hopefully make noise. You're playing with an established coach that will define your role and, and you know, has looked out for vets in the past. And that's the other thing that kind of went unspoken with talking about Doc. And, and again, not necessarily a knock on any other coach, but I think one of the best – the Biggest part about having a coach like him is, especially when you're strapped and only have things like the MLE and vet minimums, 
I think guys are going to want to play for him. Yeah. I yeah. don't know, especially veterans, I don't know how much they would have wanted to play for Brett, a guy that they didn't really ever read on, a guy they didn't know that much about, yeah. a guy that had a history of really only working with guys that didn't really belong in the league in the first place and guys that got moved around and whatnot. Like, now you've got a guy that has a history of, like, players liking to play for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a great thing going into a very strapped free agency of finding guys that may want to come here, even if it's just for a year. You know, they, they know that, you know, Doc's going to shoot straight with them on what their role is and what their minutes are. And if he says they're going to, you know, get something, get a, a certain, you know, spot or, or role that they're going to get it, uh, you know, barring, you know, outrageous performance, et cetera, et cetera. So that, one, that's one thing that's exciting about him. One thing to add on to that, too, is along the lines, like, the players talk. Exactly. So uh, somebody who's playing with Rondo right now, yeah, what do you think about Doc? Rondo tells him what he thinks about Doc. I don't exactly. Know they like I mean, other, consider but. the fact that he coached Chris Paul for something. Chris yeah. Paul is the president of the Players Association. Yep. He's uh, a huge he, voice in the league. You should definitely go play for him. Maybe they take a vet minimum instead of a, I don't know, a $4 million deal, or right. $5 million deal. Yep. Completely agree. Bring Jason. Uh, so I think, I think we're all, uh, I think we're all agreed on GR3 there. Uh, of the guys that are on the roster now or, you know, reasonable candidates like a GR3. Uh, to to possibly be back, who's the sixth man for this team? Who's the guy that is not going to start that you believe can be, you know, a, a punch off the bench offensively that can be the guy that you can expect, you know, something like twenty minutes a game from off the bench throughout most of the season to to give you you know offense and at least average defense. Uh, when you look at a lot of the guys on this team, it feels like there's a lot of specialists for specific things. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, and actually jump ahead of this one first because everybody knows what my agenda is and why I'm even bringing this up. Mm-hmm. The answer is Furkan Korkmaz. Yes. I'm not even. I'm really not even asking the question. I'm telling you the answer to this question is Furkan Korkmaz. He needs to play 20 minutes plus a game this season. You need to take advantage of the deal that he's on, and you need to get him opportunities. And I am so. If there's one guy I think Doc Rivers will actually unlock, it's Furkan Korkmaz. Oh God! And and, and look at who who he's coached. He's coached JJ Redick. He's coached Ray Allen. Like he's coached um. Uh, who's the other? Oh, was it uh, Dunleavy? Maybe it was. Like he's coached a lot. Yeah, a lot like, of those guys. He, he had to coach he Gallinari. Coach it's not the same yeah. thing, but you know. So uh, Ty's been waiting for the Corkmaz talk all night. He's yeah, popping over here. I told him it was here. coming. I told it's him it was pop. coming. It's even I put, the best I put this list, in here right? just so I could bring it up. Uh, Furkan Corkmaz does does not get enough credit for the season that he had. Um, I, I I really think that this was a breakout season for him, and, and people still harped on a few of the games where he went cold. He did actually play more than 20 a game this season. He played almost 22 in 72 games this season. And what do you think he, what you know, considering the ups and downs, he had 30-point games, but he had games where maybe he played five minutes and didn't score. Yeah. He averaged 10 points a game through all that. He actually That's averaged surprising. 10 points a game. Yeah. He shot over 40% from three. You have yeah. to get this guy involved. You have to figure out how to make him like a consistent guy. We saw him develop his dribbling. We saw him develop his drive game just a little bit, just enough to not be completely one-dimensional. Yeah, and, and we, we've talked about this before from, you know, b- uh, pre-bubble and while in the bubble and against Boston. Corkman is this type of guy, like, if he's only in there for five minutes, like, he, he's not making an impact right. at all. You have to like, let has, him get in a rhythm. Yeah, you have to. I mean, he's a shooter. Like, that's that's what they have to shoot do. Shoot shoot, baby. 
Shoot or shoot, shoot and, or shoot. Uh, you know, they uh, can't shoot if they don't have minutes. So, so I'm telling you, I think yeah. that he's the guy. I think a lot of people are going to look to a Shake Milton type, and he's had his flashes. But if, I, if I'm picking one guy that I think they really need to make a, a discernible effort to get involved and, and to figure out, you know, a, a precise way to bring him in the game and get him involved routinely, I, th- I think that guy is for and, Cork Moss. And you know what? I'm... I'm not just going to play to our, you know, to your, you know, Furcon, uh, you know, what do we want to call it? Fandom or, oh, you know. Fair. I mean, there's I like mean, five I mean, of us, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've been to, <laughs> but you've been Furcon, uh, you know, day one. When day everyone one. Hate, everyone wanted to uh, hate on him. But the one thing about Doc Rivers that's kind of driving me crazy is everyone thinks we're going to get the Tobias Harris set played for the Clippers. And I just, I don't see that happening. because Why? That was one half of a season where That's not he true. played really, really well. That's one and a half seasons. One and a half seasons, but I just – it's been a while since I read – I think Bodner wrote a really good article about how his ability to, like, hit the long twos and, and you know, the threes he was making just wasn't really sustainable. So a lot of the stats that people were pulling out, like, I, I just don't see it happening. But I don't but, know. Where, I mean, where do, you, where do you get that something isn't sustainable? I mean, the biggest difference from L.A. to here was the fact that they that here he wasn't able to get shots in the corner. And again, we've talked about so many times about the fact that he had to play such an odd role in this fucking mess of an offense, whereas in the Clippers, even with guys departing, even with guys like um, DeAndre Jordan leaving and Blake Griffin le- leaving, that they still at least had a, a routine offense. And for the most of the time he was there, uh, you know, he had CP3 available, or, or at least when he didn't have CP3, then they had uh, Shai Gilgis-Alexander in there, who, who was playing really well in the time that him and Tobias were together. So, um, you know, he, he always had a guy like Lou Williams around. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's crazy. I'm not saying you get exactly that, but you definitely are going to get him to shift more toward that than I think any fall well, and, any further than he has since coming and, here. And I hope so, but let's just put it this way. I see there's a greater probability or chance that Furcon goes to the next level, you know, getting more minutes, score more points. I, I would, if they have an all-star game this year, I want to see them in a three-point contest just because that's, that's just like a, a benchmark of knowing you're one of the, the best contest guys. too. He can go. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he, already, he's already won one. Yeah, he yeah, won one yeah. So he is a defending dunk contest, which champion, is as many so. as I've seen TJ McConnell win, for what it's worth. If you <laughs> think that it matters at all, but uh, yeah, Rob, your thoughts, six man thoughts on on Corkmaz or so, any other piping hot bullshit you want to say? <laughs> That's pretty much the only reason I wanted to do this. This six man thing, honest. it would really depend on. Are we talking about the roster right now? Yes. So if nothing changes, Burks is my six man or Horford. Obviously, I don't think I start Horford, but as far as like a scoring flash in the pan, I think Burks would be my six man. I think Furkan, and and the reason I say this because the six man thing is so strange to try to figure out. Like Lou Williams to me is a six man, you know, is that scorer off the bench? I don't know if Furkan's that scorer off the bench. Well, he's definitely not he's, Lou Williams. He's that yeah. shoot. He's that shooter off the bench. You know, but Burks could be. But it a depends Lou how Williams your team is assembled. That's what I'm saying. Lou Burks is the kind of guy that if you have like I don't think Furkan's really that good without Ben. Obviously, oh, on this team, on this team, because yeah, I mean, ben there's no shooters. The shooters. There's right? no shooters on this team that's good without Ben. Um, Agreed. I will but, definitely uh, agree with that. 
I think you can throw Burks in there without Ben, without Embiid, and get a couple buckets. Where I don't think you're getting that with Furkan. Well, I, I would, but I would pick Burks. So I, the, I, I didn't pick Burks because I don't think he's it's bad. a mute point because I don't think he's here. Yeah. Yes. So that, that I kind of took that into consideration. Yes, if he is, if he's in the list, then even my phantom aside, I would pick Burks. But, but now, outside of that, would be Shake, but Shake would be starting the way things are set up right now. So you're probably looking at Furkan. Yeah. All right, the, the last thing was basically just the news that was announced today, which we, we've hinted at a couple of times already, obviously, but Shams Sharania tweeting today that the NBA and the NBA Players Association have been in conversations about the December 2nd proposal. It's been important for teams and players to get back on a normal schedule, allow players to receive their summers. Dialogue will continue, so uh, they are projecting the start at December 22nd. There are talks about them wanting... To avoid a bubble, they want to do in-market play. Uh, there will be arena protocols when fans are allowed, which could include testing for some and better air purifiers in buildings. Do you guys think there's any chance they actually start the season before the end of this calendar year? Yes. Yes. Really? I, I think they have to. I mean, any business, any sports league, like there's just going to have to be some sort of sacrifices. Like, like the NFL didn't have any preseason games, mm-hmm. and maybe they scheduled a draft sometime in. But the NFL you know, didn't change anything about their last season. They still had all the time off they oh, needed. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's true. They definitely had that to their. That's my biggest but... concern. If I'm LeBron James, I'm saying fuck this. LeBron doesn't really have a say in it. Oh, shit, the, LeBron doesn't have a no, say in it. It's on the Players Association at that point. That's Chris Paul. But here's the thing, too. Like, if they wanted to push it back to get fans in the stands. That was the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal is always making money. Well, right? the ultimate goal was they had to push it back because they wanted to finish the last finish season. Finish the last season. But, yeah, but it's number two. They were like, and really, number stands, one is They want to make money, right. right? So, if they don't believe that they're gonna, they can push it back till January and get fans in the stands... You're not going to give up Christmas Day. Just the TV money alone. You're mm-hmm. not giving it up. And, and and I know it's not important to people, but they also want to end the season before the Olympics, the Olympics begin. And I just I know a lot of people don't care for Olympic basketball, but to some players, so like a good chunk of people, like that's really important. And I just think beyond next season, like to get back to a normal schedule, like they're they're going to have to do some sort of crazy, like really condensed schedule just to, so that they can eventually get back to normal. So I th- now, that's just what's going to take, I think. Now, I don't know how they're going to pull off the draft, free agency, camp, practice, any type of preseason game and the start of the season in like 33 days. That's but, just another reason I don't think yeah. it is. That's what surprised you guys are so adamant you think they are. I, I think I, I think I, the Christmas Day money is talking. But, but you know what? Believe like, me, I mean, I want Christmas Day so bad. I, I've, I've said that they should have made that the start for every year going mm-hmm. forward. But see, free agency, like uh, by the time, you know, uh, on the day of free agency, when it, uh, you know, the – the clock hits twelve oh one. Like players are already signed. Well, yeah, they have the so they probably already know where all that. Well, it's just period. a matter of yeah. years and money. You have the right. tampering like, period. You know, or at least the guys that matter the most. So, I mean, I That's think true. It's just going to be. I just. I it's going to be a clusterfuck. I don't but I think see seventy two games to... happening. I don't see it getting in before the end of the calendar year. I think ultimately that I mean we're like 
again, trying to avoid the political side of this, we're seeing, you know, another wave of this virus start to come through. The numbers are spiking again. Like hashtag team meteor, baby. Exactly. So like for all we know in two weeks, you know, shit's going to hit the fan. We have the election coming up. We don't know if this virus is going to continue to rise again. If there's going to be shutdowns again, I just, I've I, I, like their best case scenario is that. And in this year expecting the best case scenario for anything seems like a pretty big mistake to me. I definitely think that they end up playing maybe more like a 56 to 60 game schedule that starts maybe toward the end of January. Maybe they wait till like right after the Super Bowl. I don't um, think they wait until after Martin Luther King Day. So January 18th, I think, would be the okay. latest. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I, could, I mean, that's realistic. I yeah. could definitely get behind that and you use MLK Day as a makeshift Christmas day. But I, I do think they start by Christmas. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Do. I hope they do. One thing about the NBA is what we noticed and what I've seen, you know, going into the bubble is – they do their research. So they're not like, like from the outside looking in the NFL, they're like, oh, we're going to test. We'll throw you on a list. Like the NBA figured this bubble thing out. And, and they, they had zero they positive tests. But that's my other concern is they're saying that they're adamant to not do the bubble. If you told me they were doing the bubble, then I'd buy in. But mm-hmm. I think, so you hear about the scheduling, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah. So Woes reported the scheduling for it is going to work almost like baseball. So like if you had. You're only going to play regional teams. No. No, no, you're going to play all your away games. So, like, if you have three away games against the Knicks, you're going to play – you're going to go to New York one weekend. You're going to play Brooklyn, and you're going to play New York. Oh, you mean like, like normal like baseball, series. not so, like this baseball. Like series, yes. So, like okay, – so, see. basically, what what's going to happen is you only travel to New York one time. Right. So, okay. that, that, that cuts off three other trips. That's yeah. weird. So, they're going to reduce traveling. That's, the Rhodes reported that today. But they – the NBA, when – it seems like when they get their mindset – Florida had what seventy thousand cases a day when they were going there. People were like, oh, you're going to kill all the NBA players. We're still going because they they work with you know. No, I'll give them that. I don't. I don't have any issue with the way that the NBA does their research or, or figures out their solutions. I just think that again, I think what's being proposed is is definitely an optimistic best case scenario. It's quick, and, man. And, and I don't know if I would want to would want to bet on that. But hey, who knows? Again, I I love Christmas Day basketball. Because uh, I don't fucking do anything, so I love to just watch. So I hope that's the case, but I, I'm not optimistic. But, hey, I feel better that you guys are. Um, before we go, any anything else you guys have? Any Anything you want to plug or anything, especially Rob with uh, Last Out or anything? No. Just pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Lots uh, of things if you happening. haven't already, people. We, we got to the top of the show, so make sure you're following Rob. Uh, on Twitter, and make sure that you're checking out everything from the Podcast Potables Network, our other shows, post-game potables, power bombs and potables, punches and potables, the whole PPPPPP uh, whatever uh, network. But uh, for Rob and Steve, I'm Dan. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and trust the podcast. Peace.